You're listening to Rockland Community Church, connecting all generations to Jesus. So after all the wondering, is he worthy, who is worthy to remedy this problem, one of the elders said to me, to John, weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. And then the scene of them crying out, worthy are you to take the scroll to open its seals, for you were slain and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests who are God, and they shall reign on the earth. Worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. To him who sits on the throne and to the lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. Amen. Let's pray. Father, thank you that we, we worship you, that you sent one who is worthy the one who is worthy to remedy our greatest problem, your utter, complete perfection and holiness and our unholiness, that you sent your son, Jesus Christ, to the world, that we might be in relationship with you, that we might be forgiven before you because he is worthy. We worship him today. We pray in Christ's name, amen. Amen. Thank you again to our CCU students. I think they're getting, they're coming for the next one. I'm so glad they're here with us. Um, we, we talked a little bit last week. We've been just talking about the gospel. And, um, and last week we talked about what do we do when we're in times of mystery? When we're waiting for uh, something, where, um, what will the result be of this? Or, or why did this happen? Or where is God in this? Or which decisions should I make? I have, I have two good decisions that I could make, or the converse, it might be I have two bad decisions, like either one seems like it could go badly, and we're in this mystery trying to figure out what do we do. And last week, I just said we very simply, we have to remember who God is and what he has done. Last week, we talked about who God is. This week, we're going to get to what he has done. Now, um, we know that the times of mystery are good because it actually grows our faith, because if we don't have mystery, we don't need faith. We don't have mystery, we don't need faith. If we know everything, then we don't have to actually trust in anything. We've just, we, we just trust that it's gonna happen the way that we, that we already know that it's going to. And so mystery can be very good for us. And at the same time, um, I don't think we're just robots that can just go, oh, mystery's good for me, so I'll just embrace this. Yeah, problem solved, glad I came to church today, right? That, we're, that there's, usually there's emotions involved, there's all sorts of things involved, and it's not as easy as just clicking over into that gear. And so that's why John, the author of Revelation, shows us what to do. In times of mystery, we remember who God is and what he has done. Last week, we talked about who he is. He is the, he is the triune God. He is, he is Father, Son, Spirit. He is the thing that if you and I were the most intelligent people in the world and we got together for years and tried to make up a God, we would never come up with something so profound as God in three persons, the Trinity. That's where we remember who he is. He is the, the faithful witness. Jesus Christ was the faithful witness. It has the, word, the idea of the word martyr in it, that he, he came and even under the greatest of persecution, he lived faithfully, perfectly faithfully in obedience to his heavenly Father. He is the faithful witness. And then a ruler over all the earth, over all the powers, any power in your life, any power that you are over someone else, he is the eternal ruler over all the earth and all the powers Within it. And when we're in times of mystery, we can remember who is God and we get the glimpses of who He is and it can help our problems seem smaller. And then He goes on to what He has done. 
Revelation 1, it's the end of chapter five. It says, to him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom, priests to his God and Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever, amen. You can see at least three things that he's done, actually kind of a fourth as well. Loves us, freed us, and made us a kingdom. Loves us, freed us, and made us a kingdom. And then we'll see a priestly role within that, um, in that kingdom. But the, very, the first thing that I would be very remiss if I didn't just mention this is he loves us. He loves us. Like this is John present tense saying not he loved me back then or he loves maybe the person I'll become someday. But he's saying he loves us. He loves us as we are. In fact, he loves us as we are so much that oftentimes the the messed up stuff in our life, he doesn't want to leave in our life. He loves us, and so he wants to pull us through that, but he loves us. And this is really important if you're in a time of mystery and you're thinking, the mystery, honestly, is a little bit of my fault. I don't know how I'm paying for college because I didn't save. That's my fault. Uh, I don't know how we're going to, this relationship that we're in, gosh, I've just been neglecting it. I don't even know if this relationship's gonna be salvaged. What's the end result of this going to be? And you might go, gosh, that's kind of my, that might be my fault that I didn't really nurture this relationship along. And so oftentimes what can happen if, we're, if the type of mystery that we're in says, um, you know, I did something to sort of deserve this or this is kind of my own doing, then every other relationship we have says you need to sort of grovel your way back to the one that we've offended. And this says... He loves us. Now, I know not everybody has this circumstance, but um, like I, I think about, I think the best, the best maybe human parallel is I can think of nothing that my children could ever do, no matter how far they ran, that I would not, if they turned back, I would not be like, the, they wouldn't be like the prodigal son and the prodigal daughter, that I would just be standing there with my arms wide open. That's the image that we're supposed to have of God. And if you're feeling like, well, maybe I'm over here, maybe I'm in this mystery because of something that I've done, just repent, just turn to him. That one of the weird things about us is our love that we have can kind of do this based on how we're feeling or what someone did for us or something like that. Um, Or probably even more so for us, our, our own sense of lovability can go like this. I'm not super lovable right now. Oh, now I'm pretty dang lovable. Now I'm not. Now I am. Now I'm not. We can feel like we have these good and bad streaks that we go through. And no matter what, no matter where we are on that, we have a God whose love is consistent and he is standing there like the father in the story of the prodigal son saying, come back to me. And so as we're walking through these times of this mystery, I think it's so comforting to remember no matter what we did, if we're the ones that put ourselves in the bind or if we just committed our absolute worst sin, There's a God like a good parent standing there with arms wide open saying, come to me. It's not just that he loves us. It says he demonstrated his love for us. It says, freed us from our sins by his blood. Freed us from our sins by his blood. Now, this is one of the few times where I think the the King James Version has, um, it has something slightly different. Um, The King James comes from some different uh, manuscripts that are very, very close to what we have in our modern translations. There's a handful of times there's gonna be some minor discrepancies. And literally, the King James transcripts have one letter in the Greek different from um, the more modern transcripts. So in the King James, it, when it, where it says, has freed us from our sins by his blood, it would say, has washed us from our sins 
by his blood, which, let's be honest, is also true. He has washed us from our sins. There's an old hymn, there is a fountain filled with blood. Do you know this one? There's a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins, and sinners plunged beneath that flood lose all their guilty stains. Did you learn that one in vacation Bible school? Anybody? It's one of the more graphic types of hymns, but you can get the idea of what's happening is, is the blood of Christ and you're plunged beneath it. And it says you're washed. Um, it, it, verse two says the dying thief rejoiced to see that fountain in his day, the one on the cross with Christ or, ne- or next to Christ. The dying thief rejoiced to see that fountain in his day and there may I, though vile as he, wash all my sins away. So let's be clear. Yes, he has washed us from our sins. I just don't think that's the best way to understand what this text is saying. And I think it's important to see he has freed us from our sins. When's the last time you've thought about being free from your sins? Oftentimes we think of um, forgiveness for our sins, but to really be freed from our sins, that he took the wrath of God on our behalf, that he took the consequence for us, that we're freed from even our, our past sin, our past self, and being defined by that. That I, you know, I, I'm an addict, that's who I am, that's who you were. That I'm a, I'm a failure, oh my gosh, I mean, relationally, financially, I mean, everything in the world, that's who, that's who I am, that's who you were. You were forgiven from those things. Christ is calling us to move forward. How often do we spend our lives trying to overcompensate and prove you know, the failure that I was? Well, not anymore, and here I go, and I'm gonna completely overcompensate for it, and our, our life is about overcompensating for what we've done in our past, and Jesus says that's not who you are anymore. This is actual freedom that this offers. About 10 years ago, I was with a um, group of high school students at another church, and we did a mission trip to New York City, and we went across, uh, if you've been there, Staten Island Ferry, and we had scouted it so we knew which side of the boat to be on so we could see the Statue of Liberty up close. And we went across, and we had 40 or 50 or so high school students there, and and we we prompted them ahead of time and said, we're going to talk when we get to the other side, and there was a... Staten Island Yankees, a minor league baseball team. We got to go to their game. It was a blast. But we went across and we said, um, be looking at the Statue of Liberty and be thinking about the freedom that is being offered. And when we get over there, what we're going to do is we're going to compare and contrast our view, man's view of freedom, Statue of Liberty, with God's view of freedom. And we said, all right, enjoy the thing. And we got there, and they're all looking, and there are like 50 high school kids watching and just sitting there, not saying a word, just taking in, like there's the Statue of Liberty right there, and thinking and thinking. So we got across to Staten Island. Before we went to the game, we just gathered up at a little, there's a little um, oh, kind of walkway, little park thing right there. And we gathered up, and everybody was just sharing. It was really fascinating to hear. And then as we were walking, there's one kid, one, one young man that was always very quiet. But you know those people that are really quiet, and then the one time they talk, you go, I'm gonna write that down. That was this kid, all right? And so I was like, I gotta see what he's gonna say. So I went over, I went over and I, I said, hey, you didn't share anything, it's no big deal, but I'm just curious what was going on in your mind. And as we were going by, they were doing some kind of construction or painting or something like that on, um, on the Statue of Liberty. And so he was, he was just noted, noting that as tall and as, uh, I'm not gonna get his words right, but as, as sort of formidable as this thing is, it needs a touch up every now and then. And, uh, and he said it was interesting, I was just looking and thinking there was a time when this statue wasn't there. And he said, and there might be a time in, a f- in the future 
when this statue won't be there. And I thought, you might be right. And he just had this, we had this beautiful conversation just about how, um, how fragile freedom, as we think of freedom, is. And how rock solid the freedom from our sins that Christ offers really is. That there's not, this is not going to be taken from us. We are freed from our sins. You get the idea of freedom in our world today. We think of things like, you know, I've got my, my, I'm not tied to my phone. Now I've got a cell phone that can go with me wherever I want. Oh, freedom. Nope. <laughs> now people can get in touch with you anytime they want to get in touch with you. If I just get more money, then I will have the freedom to do the things I want to do. And what do we know? Come on, you get more money, and then what happens? I want more money, and I need more, and I need more, and I need more. And we go, oh, I'll be free. And then you go, well, not really. Same with pleasure. I just need some amount of pleasure. And then over time, you just go, I just need more and more. And it's actually a captivating thing. The things the world say, says are freedom aren't. And what does he say? You are freed from your sin, that Christ has paid the price for our sin. So this is helpful to me in times of mystery when I'm feeling too guilty to go, maybe I'm the one that caused the problem, and here I am wanting to go to God to dig me out, and it's like, I feel like I'm taking advantage of your love in a way I shouldn't, and he's going, I love you. I have freed you from this. How much have I freed you? I sent my son, Jesus Christ, to die that you can be freed, that you can be forgiven, that we can go to him. I don't have to worry about his wrath because of his great love and my trust in what Jesus Christ has done for me. And if that's not good enough, to him who loves us and freed us from our sins by his blood, and it says, and made us a kingdom. Have you ever noticed sometimes in our times of mystery, one of the reasons why it can, it can be our every consuming thought is our world, our kingdom, if you will, shrinks down to the size of that one event or that one test result we're awaiting, that one why did this happen and we can forget about the whole big world going on around us. And I've had times I've thought, I think I just wasted a whole bunch of my life just thinking like my first citizenship is as a father or as an American or something like that, and this one incident or this thing I don't have an answer to is my all-consuming thought. My kingdom just shrunk to that size. Instead of remembering that he has made us a kingdom, that we, our first and foremost allegiance is to the kingdom of God. This is, why, this is why some of the things happening in our world today I think are quite dangerous. Like I think of identity politics, okay? Um, I am a, I'm a straight white man, so I don't have any internal or external pressure telling me that my first group, my first community, my first tribe I need to be a part of is, is some other sort of sub-kingdom, if you will. And so many other people that aren't what I just said are feeling that pressure to say, I have to first and foremost identify with this community. This has to be my primary tribe in the world. And so for me, since I'm not getting that pressure, I am free to say, I want, now I can put my citizenship, I can put my first and primary allegiance in being a member of the kingdom of God. That's one of the things I think is terrible about it, many things, um, terrible uh, about identity politics is it's teaching you to identify with a subgroup, a sub-kingdom of some sort. And it can rob people of the ability to actually place their citizenship in the kingdom of God first and foremost. But it's not just identity politics. You've got, um, what about just politics in general? 
We can, we can just sort of miss the big kingdom of God and say, this is my tribe, this is my tribe, this is my tribe. That's where I identify first and foremost. Instead of going, hang on, we're part of the kingdom of God. Or even just as Americans, it's easy to just think the world revolves around us. This is my primary kingdom. We are a part of the kingdom of God first and foremost. You know, I think, um, I think for me, my kingdom can be my family. That I can shrink the kingdom that I'm in and uh, me and Nikki will be the king and queen of our own little group and that's it. Sometimes a mystery that I have can feel so huge because I mistakenly think this is my primary allegiance to my family. And first and foremost, what we see is we are citizens in the kingdom of God. We are under him first and foremost. And you know what he says is very important? Things like family. But first and foremost, I'm not a father. First and foremost, I'm not a husband. I'm a child of the king of kings and I'm a citizen of the kingdom of God. And if I shrink that kingdom too much, my mystery can just get blown up in my mind, forgetting that I'm a part of something so much bigger. Hebrews 12, 28 says this. He says, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And thus, let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe. Every other kingdom that we might be a part of is one that is shakable. And the kingdom of God is unshakable, it says. So what do we do? What are we in his kingdom? It says next, it says we are priests to his God and Father. You, you know what? Pr- priests could, could do a lot of things. One of the things they did, they had access to go before God. That's what priests did. And what he's saying here is, like, maybe some of you can. Don't raise your hand. But can anybody here just walk into the Oval Office? Or maybe you could, like, during what administration, go try that at the next one and see how that goes. You'll have secret service on you probably real quick. Of course we can't. Can you just walk to the governor where his office is and just go, I had a question, and just throw open the door and walk in? No, and I'm not saying we should. I'm saying that's reasonable access limited. But what he is saying here is you are part of the kingdom of God, and one of the unique things is you have access to the king. So in our mystery, a lot of times, we we tend to turn away from him. I think I'm the problem. I think I'm the reason that I'm here. And what he's saying is, turn to me. Turn to me. You're a part of my kingdom. You're a priest in my kingdom. You have access to me. Whether or not you feel lovable, whether or not the people around you who are really supposed to love you well, if they're not right now, and so therefore you just feel unlovable, you can go to the king of kings who loves you more than anybody. We don't approach in terror, but with awe, We approach with confidence. We don't walk up with guilt and shame. We remember that Jesus Christ has done the work so that we may approach him, that he's brought us into his unshakable kingdom. The song I mentioned earlier, verse four says this, talking about the stream of the blood of Jesus Christ. It says, ere since by faith I saw the stream, thy flowing wounds supply, Redeeming love has been my theme and shall be till I die. When we're in the mystery, we remember who God is and what he's done. What has he done to him who loves us, has freed us from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom, priests to his God and Father. To him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen.